going to the Genetic Engineering Society Center's weekly seminar series colloquium. Uh, this is our second to last colloquium and it's our last in person and we're so excited at the speaker that we have here today. And I wanna thank Dr. Ruben Rajan Alvarez for um, helping us to get the speaker here today. And so we thought it would be best to have him do the introduction. Uh, so I'm gonna give it over to Ruben and then to Dr. Denise Kostic. Thank you, Denise. Uh, yes, very happy to have uh, uh, Denise Kostic uh, here today. Um, uh, Denise is from, uh, from New York and she did uh, uh, her undergrad studies in uh, biology at uh, Cornell. And uh, after that, uh, she did her PhD at the University of, uh, of Iowa during her uh, undergrad and graduate studies. Uh, she worked on, uh, on, on um, exotic places uh, in Kenya with baboons and in the, uh, in the Amazon uh, in, uh, in Brazil. Uh, she also went to probably less exotic places, at least for me, uh, in Spain, where she studied uh, uh, the biology of uh, dioecious cucurbit uh, uh, there in, uh, in Madrid. Then uh, she did a series of postdocs, and she became more interested on, uh, on, on genetics. Um, she ended up uh, working uh, in the lab of uh, Ed Buckler. Uh, at Cornell, as you remember, Ed Butler was here in the state uh, before moving to uh, to Cornell, um, and there she she got hooked into into mass, uh, genetics. So when she saw the opportunity uh, to take a job as the director of the uh, Mays Bank uh, at CIMIT uh, in 2012, uh, she she took advantage of that opportunity, and uh, she worked there as uh, as the head of the at Mace Bank from 2012 until last year, right? Mm -hmm. And there she, she did a tremendous job at uh, regenerating some of the, uh, of the accessions that were very difficult to regenerate. She found some forgotten uh, places there in uh, fields there in, in Mexico um, where she was able to regenerate some of these uh, more resistant uh, uh, varieties. She has done a, a really good job at uh, connecting with uh, uh, local uh, uh, communities and also connecting with uh, uh, other researchers outside uh, CIMIT. Uh, she was really helpful uh, with us when we were uh, in Mexico to get our uh, Highland adaptation program uh, going, but she has also done work with uh, other researchers here in the US, with switchgrass, et cetera, et cetera. So really happy to hear what she has to tell us uh, today. Thank you, Denise. Is it okay if I take the mask off? Well, good day, everybody. Really great to be here at NC State. It was a long time ago that I, I visited, but it's, it's a really great to be back here. And uh, today I'm going to talk a lot about what I was was very heavily engaged with the last um, last eight years in Mexico. Uh, let me see. Okay, so I'm going to talk about germplasm, and uh, oftentimes people are like, "Whoa, what's germplasm?" Simply, it's living tissue from which new plants can be grown. So, tech, usually we think of seeds, and those are actually quite easy to regenerate. Usually, uh, but stems and roots that 
it can also regenerate new plants as also cultured cells, tissue culture. And uh, that's, that's, the whole, that's the whole story. Uh, but why do we preserve that germplasm? Well, we need it to ensure the survival of genetic diversity in the world's major crop species and their wild relatives so that this resource remains uh, available for current and future generations. So a very important mission that I was happy to take on. Um, when you talk about conservation of crop plants, um, you usually talk about two different ways of doing that. Uh, one is called ex situ, and that's basically what germplasm banks do. They grow these accessions, these seeds, um, somewhere away from the fields of origin. And basically we do what farmers do. We plant the seed and we grow the crop. Um, but also there's a very important community out there of um, in situ conservation. And those are basically what the farmers do. Uh, they regenerate and, and produce seeds in their own field in situ. And they basically do the same thing, plant seeds and grow the crop. Um, both of these systems act as they are, everyone in these systems are guardians of genetic diversity. And whether you're in a fancy international germplasm bank or you're in a local community such as Shoy in the Yucatan, you are a guardian of genetic diversity. So um, what are the topics, questions that we're gonna touch on today? What would a global network of plant genetic resources look like? How can an international germplasm bank reach out and help smallholder farmers? Um, how do germplasm collections contribute to research on crop genetic erosion, which is of course loss of genetic diversity in a crop plant and something we are all working to, um, to prevent or to decelerate? And the last question, uh, which is a question that was brought up by some very important person here who's in the audience today, uh, Dr. Major Goodwin, is a seed bank a seed morgue? We're going we're gonna to hit on that question at the end. And then I, I will show my gratitude to my colleagues and my sponsors. So the goal is to have fully secure and accessible plant genetic resources for food and agriculture. Um, there are international treaties that... Um, that are, provide the mandate for this work. And we want to have the potential for a multilateral flow of germplasm and knowledge among the participants in this, in this network. And who are they? Basically, they are all human beings on earth. So the goal is this fully connected system where um, you could go from a family seed reserve uh, to a community seed reserve, to a national or regional germplasm bank, to an international germplasm bank such as CIMIT, and all the way to the Arctic Circle to Svalbard, which is our ultimate backup uh, system uh, or backup location for genetic resources. Um, the reality is that the links between all of these are very weak except for this, the, this link between international germplasm banks and Svalbard, because uh, as part of our mandate, we are expected to back up at least 90% of our collections in Svalbard. So that link is very strong. And so I'm not gonna talk about that link today. I'm gonna talk about um, 
a partnership that we developed, CIMIT, uh, through a project called the Buena Milpa Project with ICTA, which is the um, basically the, the USDA ARS of Guatemala, ASOCUCH, which is a local NGO in, um, in Huehuetenango, and rural maize farmers in that region. So this is, this is a project that we, we developed. And the, you know, the Western Highlands, so you can see this is where it is of Guatemala, right, right off the, um, what's going to the north is Mexico and um, based in Huehuetenango and um, Quetzaltenango, this project uh, was working with some of the most, the, the poorest and, and, um, and uh, communities in the, in, the, in, the, in the country and in Central America. So the starting point is that traditional seed storage methods of local farmers are, are really limiting the food security in an area that is greatly affected by malnutrition and poverty. Community seed reserves could provide a very effective way to improve the seed security in the region, offering a safe, accessible source of high quality and locally adapted seed for their annual plantings and in emergencies such as crop failure due to local weather conditions. Um, we were tasked with, um, with looking at the existing community seed reserves in the Kuchmatanis Mountains region, are they living up to these expectations? And if they aren't, uh, how can we make them better? So the farmer's methods of storing grain and seed are look like look like this. There's various versions of them in, in there. They have corn cribs called trojes, or they also use metal silos that have been um, kind of in some cases foisted upon them by NGOs. Um, but they also, for in the case of maize, and I, I have to admit, I'm going to talk about maize in this whole presentation. Um, you find them stored in the husks or shelled in sacks, plastic sacks that are open, closed in various situations. Um, community seed reserves, they offer an alternative storage option for the seed. And um, this is one uh, an example of a, um, a local uh Community seed reserve and its and its agrobiodiversity collection, um, but the main, the core of the community seed reserves are these things called private accounts. So it's like a bank account that you deposit your seed um, after you harvest it. You have your grain that you keep for consumption, and if you have any, you can sell it. Or then you have you have your selected seed that you're going to you intend to plant for the next cycle. And that seed can go into your family's flask um, in the seed reserves. And the following year, you go back, you plant that seed, and you, you start the cycle over and over again. So it's a, it's a simple loop cycle. Um, these community reserves also provide other important services. Some of them work in the area of participatory breeding, where community members are actually doing breeding of their, and improving their stock. Sometimes they can develop improved uh, open pollinated um, seed uh, seed for the community. Also, they usually have a, an emergency grain silo that in case of total crop loss, they can support the, the community with getting going again. But the problem is in, in these community seed reserves, which are all equipped with hygrometers, we find that the humidity is very high. And this is not a good thing for storing seed, but 
not only in the community seed preserves, but even when you look inside the flasks, you see that the seed is wet. Um, you can see all those little pink cards, which I'm gonna talk about, but they indicate that the seed is, is too wet. The seed is susceptible to insect and mold. And this is a major problem for the community seed reserves. So why is this important? The longevity of the seed is highly sensitive to moisture content and temperature. So the duration of seed viability is reduced by half for every 1% increase in moisture content, which is a serious issue, or an increase in temperature of six degrees centigrade. Now in the building of these community sea reserves, which was funded by the Norwegian government for over 12 years, um, they got better and better at making these, these little huts um, more uh, temperature resistant, but they really didn't do much about the, the humidity. Um, so here's the problem. Uh, the humidity is very high. And we started thinking about what the solution would be. The solution could be that you lower the humidity inside the seed containers and not worry so much about the whole building. Remember, most of these communities do not have electricity. So they can't just switch on the dehumidifier. So I went back and started Googling and searching for more information about alternatives and found an alternative um, that was already being used in regional um, uh, germplasm banks in Asia and specifically here in this case in India. It's an innovative technique using desiccants to dry vegetable seeds, a technique that requires very little power. So I was on that one. This is what I want us to check out. And uh, what they are called is drying beads. You can see them up in the, the upper left-hand corner. Uh, they're they're uh, ceramic beads, a special kind of clay called zeolite. And uh, they absorb the pores of, these, uh, of this clay are the correct size for water molecules. So water molecules can enter and they don't get released until you heat the beads and uh, and reactivate the beads. So it, you know, people are are very uh, know about silica gel. It's basically running on a similar. They, they're desiccants, just like silica gel, but better for for a number of reasons. So the concept of what has become known as the dry chain is that you want to make the seed dry, and then you've got to keep them dry. So it's it's kind of a two-step idea. And the bottom line is that dry seeds are completely resistant to insect infestations. And you need a way to monitor that in a, in, with a, a fast and inexpensive way. And so the UC Davis uh, Hort Lab developed this thing called a dry card, which um, you can put in the flasks and, and very quickly know whether your seed is dry enough for storage or not. Um, we tested this in our gene bank. We, were, you know, we weren't gonna, going to promote something that we didn't truly believe in. And we had grain that was at various levels, moisture levels, which you can see on the little, the little tags there. And we put the, put the um, dry cards in. And you can see that throughout this range of 15 to 16% of grain humidity down to 7 to 8, you can, you can find the sweet spot using 
dry cards. So we felt like this was something that we could really uh, get behind. The other thing is, is people were not at, at the community seed reserves, were not monitoring their seed viability at all. And so we wanted to, in, wanted to have something that a way to show the whole community how the, the seed germination was going with their, um, with their collection. So we, uh, we actually saw one farmer had a seed bench, a sand bench. And also in my prior uh, life, uh, I worked in a maize genetics lab where they were screening lots and lots of uh, mutants. And so they use sand benches all the time. And they had this cool thing called sand bench hole puncher, which basically created a little 100 seed um, plot. And so I actually went back to my old lab uh, when I was home for on home leave. I borrowed their sand bench hole puncher and I took it back with me to Guatemala. We eventually built our own, but you know we we were able to use that. And also one thing that we wanted to do is we wanted to be able to view these dry cards um, without opening the top of the flasks. So we we just created our own. Um, little transparent lid. And so now we were ready to do an experiment in the community sea reserves using drying beads. So this was the experiment that we did in 2019. And basically we were testing the hypothesis, these basic hypotheses that the quality, seed quality could be maintained better if the seed is dried with drying beads. Also, we wanted to show that um, hermetically sealed containers are also a very important part of the equation. And we wanted to also provide a little more evidence to the communities that these community sea reserves really are uh, useful and something that they could should join in on. Um, what we did is create this just this experimental set, uh, which had uh, uh, three replicates of three different um, uh, treatments. And uh, each set went out to a location and those locations were in three communities. In each community, there were two types of reserve. There were, was a farmer reserve and there's also the community sea reserve. The three treatments are, are shown there um, and um, we had three reps. Also uh, that little guy that's, that's in a yellow circle, that was the data logger. So we wanted to keep track of moisture and temperature throughout the whole experiment. The three communities were in quite different environments and they spanned a, a, a wide range of um, altitudes. So Climentoro was the highest altitude down to uh, San Francisco, which was more subtropical, tropical region. You can see that the mean temperatures and, and relative humidities were pretty different from one another. We also built our own sand bench back at Kissimmee. We weren't going to we weren't going to force anybody to build a sand bench until we had done it and shown how it works. So this was ours that we that we used to set up a, a demo. Um, and then we built sand benches in, at the community sea reserves in the three sites. You can see everyone working hard. We, they actually had to bring the sand up from the from the valley from the stream to build these, and they had to have cover on it to keep the animals out. Um, but when we started um, started to test for storage effects between the different treatments, you could almost, you could immediately see a difference. And we were doing this at, at three months, 
three months into the experiment and then six months into the experiment. We thought we were going to have to run this experiment for a full year. By six months, we had all we need to know. And um, it was it was very uh, uh, a, a very good demo demonstration for the technicians that worked on the project, but also for community members. Um, we had the data loggers, and, and when we went out to collect data at three months and six months, we would download the data from the loggers and put them back. And um, you can see that uh, down there in the right-hand corner, you can see the, the, the two treatments, the blue cards in the, um, in the flasks on the, on the right are, um, are the ones with dried seed. And the pink ones were the ones that were not dried using drying. So you, you can see that throughout the whole experiment, the conditions were maintained. Um, we did two things. We measured grain quality. So we had you take a 100 seed sample from the, from the seed and then look at intact seeds. So you would look for insect damage, mold damage, and keep track of that. And... Um, also, eventually, we did germination percent in the sand benches. So um, I'm going to show you some data here. Uh, you can see right away that in, in terms of the seed dried with beads and kept in hermetic flasks over the course of six months, it basically stayed the same and very high germination rates. Uh, if it's not dried initially, you already see a substantial drop right, in all environments. Um, in the case of the net bags, uh, you also see a big drop because remember those net bags are exposed to completely exposed. Uh, but the degree and the pattern is slightly different depending on, on the environment. Um, seed quality also, you know, it reflects the same results that we were getting with, um, with uh, germination, which makes sense. Um, and here's the results. So um, is the seed quality maintained better uh, when you do use drying beads? Yes, in all environment and in both reserve types. Um, is the seed quality maintained better in hermetically sealed containers? Only when the seed is properly dried first. So it makes sense. If you store in a flask wet seed, those, those insect eggs are, are there and they're going to hatch and you're going to have issues. Um, the final one, seed stored in community seed reserves is maintained better than seed stored in family seed reserves. And that is not necessarily true. Um, it really depends on the storage quality. And the, the community seed reserves do show technical advantages, such as they have a lower and more stable temperature than the farmer's um, seed reserves and more consistent pets control. But you, in the high altitude areas, the farmer uh, seed storage is, is, it can be similar to what's going on in the community seed reserve. So now this is the final, the, our final kind of recommendation for incorporating the dry chain philosophy in community seed reserves. Harvest the seed, take the seed to, the, to store in the community seed reserve. At that point, the technicians and the, and the community um, uh, members Use a dry card test to find out, is it dry enough? Is it wet enough? If it's dry, great. Get it into the family flask, you're good. If not, use a silo, a little uh, a silo that has, has uh, activated drying beads and dry it down and then get it into the flask. And then throughout the year, you do monitoring, which would be very quick. 
if you have a little a little uh, transparent window, you can look in, you can look through your whole seed reserve probably in about a half an hour and see if you've got any wet stuff. If you've got any wet stuff, get it back to the silo, dry it down, and then recorporate it. And also at some point, probably before the farmers come to get their seed, check the seed viability in the sand bench to see how it's doing. So I showed you a very micro um, um, version or a perspective of this problem, but this is a global problem. And I, I'm bringing the perspective out on this slide where you see that one third of the total food produced is lost before reaching the consumer, one third. And also 4.5 billion people have aflatoxin in their food and that's because they're storing wet food, wet grain. So humidity is a problem and dry chaining is the solution. Um, now I'm gonna talk about um, crop genetic erosion. Just recently, uh, there's a, a, a like biblical size um, review paper on crop genetic erosion in the new phytologist, highly recommended. I am a co-author, but it's a good paper. It'll, it'll tell you everything you didn't know or wanna know about crop genetic erosion. Um, and in that paper, we do touch on the situation with, um, with maize in Mexico. And um, I'm showing you here in, in the two sides of this figure, two, two um, different approaches to studying uh, crop genetic erosion. On the left side, um, you're looking at uh, distribution models that show that the richness, so that's the uh, number of land races um, generally increased actually over time in eight of 11 maize biogeographic regions. Now, all of the data for this study came from germplasm bank collections. So our, because our um, seed has information tied to it, it has um, you know, where it was collect collected and you can easily find out the weather conditions of that particular location because there's all this information and also there's a time frame because anything that was collected, you know the date of when it was collected. You get that very important information that can be used for studies such as this. Um, and then on the right-hand side, this is a, a very in-depth study that a student that worked with us at the Simmet Germplasm Bank did on, on a particular kind of land race called Ancho, which means wide. And you can probably see by the pictures why it's called wide. Um, in Morelos State, which is the state of Mexico, just south of Mexico City. And this illustrates, um, this study will, and I'm, I will go into a little more detail on the results of that study. It shows that there is ongoing evolution of these land races um, due to farmer selection. So here is a, an accession that was collected in the, 19, uh, the 1960s. And then um, on the right, that's the same, it's maize from that same farmer's family after 50 years of selection by farmers for wide grain, okay? Pretty good, pretty good um, uh, result there. Um, so even though, you know, there's uh, ongoing evolution and farmer selection, we found that, that the um, molecular genetic diversity, the foundation diversity of those accessions in this case were basically the same over 50 years. 
So um, now I'll show you a little bit of the background of that study. So um, here's the question. What has happened in situ back in with farmers with uh, maize, land race, seed lots that were conserved ex situ? So six, in, the in 1967, this collection, the, these, um, uh, this maize was collected from farmers. And you can see uh, it was in the state of Morelos. And um, 93 samples were collected, uh, actually from eight different maize land races from 66 families uh, in 1967. And the person who collected it, uh, this was a just a basically research assistant um, at uh, at the, the 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 newly formed Simit Germplasm Bank. And he became a very famous maize cytogeneticist. His name is Angel Cato. He worked with Barbara McClintock later on in his life. But in this, in this study, uh, he, he, he made this collection and he documented it really well. Um, he took photographs of the ears um, and he kept track of exactly the farmer's name and the site where he collected it. He even kept track of the number of ears he collected which is incredible. So um, we had this collection in our germplasm bank. And um, we thought this is a perfect way to, look, to make that direct comparison over what happens when you put the, put the seed in the refrigerator and leave it for 50 years, then go back to the original family or the original farmer, in a couple of cases it was the original farmer, and, um, and then make a comparison, okay? So this is like a, a really kind of elegant and simple ex situ versus in situ um, comparison. And this student, Denise McLean, she's another Denise, but Denise, two S's, not one. Um, uh, she did both sides. She did a socioeconomic study. So she looked at the, what the farmers did over the years. And she also did the genetic study. So this was a, a two-parted study. The if you look on the website, your GES website, you can you can click on those and get those PDFs of her study. So um, she had to go out and locate the families. She she went out and, and found uh, there were 66 families. She found 56 out of 66 families, which is pretty good. Um, she did sampling. With the, with the farmers. She interviewed families. Um, and she also, very interesting, she had focus group, discussion groups with the whole communities uh, to get a, a, get a bigger picture, not just of these particular 56 families, but also to look at the communities that they live in. So she had focus group discussions. Then she took everything, took it, the seed with her. She went to Italy, actually, and she did uh, sequencing. To, to get uh, genetic diversity molecular markers uh, that would allow her to do the genetic comparison to see what are the levels of genetic diversity in these two in these two samples in situ versus ex situ. Um, what she found was was there were some very striking things. Um, remember, I said she had fifty six families that she worked with. Of those fifty six, ten of those families, only 10 of those families were still growing the same seed lot. So that is that the, the original collection passed on along the, 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 usually it was about two or three generations 
to, to the present, um, they are still following the same seed lot. In another three cases, it was it was a different seed lot, maybe from one year they lost it, so they so they got seed from their neighbor, but basically 13. Um, and Denise did a genetic study where she compared the diversity between the two types, the in situ versus ex situ. Here's another, another case of um, what the ears looked like. Um, and what she found was, was pretty amazing, um, that these ex situ and in situ accessions basically represent the same population. So um, there was no clustering separation uh, between the two. Uh, no, she found that, that basically that genetic diversity that was back there in 1967 is still present in the populations now. Um, also, another thing she, she worked on was uh, you, you have, have noticed that Morphologically, these ears have changed a lot over 50, uh, 50 years of selection by the farmers. And they use this maize for a special kind of soup called pozole. And in pozole, it's basically you're popping the, uh, the kernels, but you're popping them in hot liquid, right, in your broth, instead of popping them um, under heat, like, like popcorn. In this case, you're popping them in, in a hot liquid. And uh, what the farmers decided to do was they wanted the wider, the better for that. And, and so they selected for eight row ears. Back in 1967, you got 12, 10, 8, all these different uh, uh, row numbers. But they started selecting really strongly on eight, and, and they got a, a fantastic result. Got much wider, uh, consistently wider. And so what she was able to do was take those two those two genetic samples and, and uh, correlate the phenotypic changes with specific genes, okay? And that are specific markers, which are connected to specific genes. And she was able to do that. And you can see um, that uh, a, a lot of the genes that, that showed this uh, change over 50 years had to do with kernel width, with kernel weight, kernel numbers. And, um, so that was another significant part. She found um, the, the, uh, the footprint of genetics, of, of phenotypic selection in the genetics. Um, so now the last thing I'm gonna talk about here um, has to do with a, something that's quoted very often in the genetic resources community that Dr. Major Goodman, who's here with us today, said at, or wrote at some point that seed banks are seed morgues. So seed banks are where seed go to die, okay? So, um, but if you look at the full, uh, the full quotation, which I don't think many people do, here it is. And what he says is that a germplasm system that merely acquires material and does not have the facilities for evaluating and utilization, it's not really a system. And in many cases, I would maintain that these seed banks are holding, collect, uh, holding such collections are really seed works. And I have to say, I'm complete agreement with that sentiment. But the problem is that everybody knows about that one, you know, that one five words that he said, and they don't really get the background to what this means. So, but having this idea that seed banks are seed morgues, here I become the director of a seed bank. And I'm like, oh, am I the director of a morgue? I gotta, I really need to know that I'm not that. 
So, um, so we had a um, advisory committee meeting and we brought together all the experts and we brought Major because even though he had some negative things to say about us, it's those people that help you get better. So people that criticize you, they can help you get better. And you got to bring them in to the community. And he was happy to come. And here he is with, with another famous uh, uh, Maze Wild relative expert, Garrison Wilkes. And we fed them up with, uh, you know, roasted uh, grasshoppers and, and maggots and things like that. And everybody was very happy. But they also gave us a lot of great advice. So, so what we did is we, we did a project where we, um, we call it the 1,000 Immortals. <laughs> and we uh, selected 1,000 accessions from our collection. Now our collection has 28,000 accessions. So we needed to, to uh, make a sampling that included many different years of storage, you know, that different levels of different le lengths of storage and look at the seed aging. We have two chambers. We have an active chamber and a base chamber. And the active chamber is warmer. It's, it's at um, uh, basically at freezing. The base chamber is much colder. We do all our um, distribution work out of the active chamber. But we, we also wanted to see if these two environments had an effect, a different effect on seed longevity. Um, and we also, we want to identify, are there specific types of maize that live longer than other types? Because that will determine how often you have to monitor, right? How often you have to check the viability. Um, so, um, and also eventually, we did not do this for this study, we want to look at what are the markers that are associated with seed longevity. Um, so this just kind of shows you that we, we, did, a, we did a kind of, Good job, I think, in sampling both uh, all the grain types the, and, and sizes and what kind of viability data we had. And this was a way that we, we made a, a, a good sample to study, to, to do the study. The data collection is basically, you know, this is the kind of stuff you did when you were in kindergarten and you put some beans on, on a wet paper towel and you waited a while and you see whether they germinate. And I mean, that's the simple technique, basically, that all germplasm banks use. And it always amazed me to go in the lab and see 50-year-old seed looking like that. I mean, it's pretty good, I would say. Uh, 50 years in a vault and still high germination rates. Um, so what's the results? So what we found was that um, here we see the, the distribution of percent germination over time, um, and we find that uh, the mean germination rate in the base chamber, which is that the green peak there, was very high, 92, oh, 92% is pretty darn good. Um, and also, you can see that the distribution is very is narrow, so that means that a lot of the seed is in that really great zone. For the for the uh, active chamber, not so good. Okay, not, I mean not too bad. Eighty-one percent, but the eighty-five percent level is the is the um, the point at which we decide to, to regenerate a collection. So we know we've got a lot of work to do. We always have a lot of work to do, and and what you can see is yeah, being in the active chamber is not so good for the seed longevity. 
Um, so the other thing we looked at was um, how, how what traits are correlated with longevity, and we found the the the, the strongest um, correlations were between grain type and also seed mass. So small seeds are, tend to be longer lived. And uh, in terms of grain type, uh, we looked at dent versus flint versus flowery, and we found that flint accessions are the longest lived. And there's been a lot of kind of anecdotal um, um, evidence that supports that. But that means that our, our uh, monitoring intervals can be much longer for like popcorns or flints as opposed to the other types. So that was really helped inform us better for our tech, our, our whole uh, process. Um, so this kind of gives you the, the, the overall story. And one thing that, that came out was that the using lower temperature is perhaps what you have to do instead of having base versus active conditions, go for the, the colder tech, uh, colder conditions throughout your vault. And this is important because all the international germplasm banks that exist have this two-tiered system. So now this is this has really pushed a lot of discussion in the community about um, how we should go forward given this this these data. Um, just to give a little this is what CIMIT headquarters in Mexico looks like from a drone. And uh, one thing you'll notice on the roof there, wow, solar panels. So uh, one year we got a big grant from the German government um, to get solar panels. So we ended up having a 70% offset of our electricity usage. We also upgraded the cold, the cooling uh, compressors and and to make them more ozone compliant. That little yellow box is actually where the where the vault is. But um, you see that on all levels, we are always pushing forward and trying to make the conditions better and improve our, um, all our processing and make our um, conservation better. And I just wanna here thank uh, our partners. These are, these are our dry chaining partners um, from many places and organizations. My key collaborators, uh, in these projects that I talked to you today, Christian Zavala is um, my, was my, my right-hand man uh, in all these projects, worked on everything that I discussed today. Carolina Camacho is a socioeconomist at CIMIT. Well, not at CIMIT now. She's left also, like me. But uh, she she worked with me on every project where I work with communities. She she was my, my go-to gal. Uh, Filippo Guzan is a postdoc, and he worked on all the seed biology projects. You might have seen him in some of the pictures in Guatemala. He was the guy on the ground there in Guatemala. Uh, but also, uh, he, he did the, uh, the seed longevity study. And Denise McLean is the student that worked in Morelos. Um, you know, it takes a village to do this kind of work. And here's the entire staff of the bank uh, a few years ago uh, with our, uh, our maize garden out there. And we grew some hala. And the, it turned out we had, that's the tallest one there is 17 feet, over 17 feet tall. And Tom Payne was my wheat counterpart, uh, the curator for the wheat collection, as I was curator for the maize collection. He also is the tallest dude there. Here's where the money came from to do all this stuff. And um, 
This past weekend, I, I was in D.C. visiting some family, and uh, we went to the National Museum of the American Indian, which I highly recommend uh, you go to. And, of course, uh, I can spot maize anywhere, anywhere in any room, and there was a lot of maize there in the, in the exhibits. Um, and uh, they had a few different, uh, they showed cultures from all over the Americas, and what they, you know, what they consider to be uh, important parts of their culture. Lots of maize there. In this case, I, I'm just sharing this, this quote, which is on the wall. Seed are extremely important planting, which seems very logical. But it just trying to show you the centrality of how important seed is. The act of seed selection is considered sacred. And yes, this is sacred work here. So... Um, I just want to thank you for your interest, and I hope we have some great questions. I'm sure we will. Thanks. So I'm going to ask you to stop sharing so that so, uh, some of our online guests can also ask questions. You'll be able to see them. Uh, so how do I, what do I want to do here? Just shut yeah, this down? Shut down <laughs> Oh, just leave it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. And so we're going to take, we have some online questions, and we'll also take uh, questions from people in, in person. Um, and I see that we have a question already from Dylan Spangle. So, Dylan, would you like to unmute yourself? Uh, yeah. Hi. Uh, thank you for the talk. Was, everything you talked about seemed really great. I was... Uh, I really liked the the dry train the dry chain project. It seems like so simple, but so important. Um, and I was wondering, uh, you mentioned a little bit about how you know the your the beads are better in some way than silica gel. I was curious uh, what led to using that particular type of desiccant and where you where you get it from. Um, well, the, the reason why we think of it as better is because um, silica, uh, silica gel not only absorbs water, it also absorbs all like essential oils in the, in the mm -hmm. plant material. Also, silica gel, when it hits its, its capacity, it will actually start sweating out water, okay? This is not a good, a good thing. Um, also, you can reactivate it by heating it, but um, the beads can be reactivated in much, much uh, more efficient and, and, uh, and level. Um, and they're, they're practically, once you get them, if you don't break them or crush them, you have them forever. Whereas silica gel really kind of starts losing its potency pretty quickly. It is a lot cheaper. Silica gel is a lot cheaper. So there are, there are some advantages. And so you have to weigh these things. And one of the things that we're working on now is to try to understand what's the best way to implement. Because you can't expect a Guatemalan smallholder farmer to buy these beads. But you could provide a cheap or free service using the beads. So, so we're, that's, that's, the, that's the area we're going into now is trying to understand how, they, how it could be implemented on a and how to scale it out. Um, 
you can, um, it, it's the development of use, drying bees were developed for the oil industry. That was the first, the original use of drying bees was, was to get water out of oil. <laughs> um, but um, this guy in Thailand realized that these drying bees could be used for, for drying down plant tissue too. And so he, he has developed a whole line of things, including uh, commercial um, offerings for, of drying bees. And his company is called Rhino Research. So you can get online and you can find, if you, do, if you, if you Google drying bees, you will find them too. Um, as, it, as many things in the world, these, these come originally from China. So you can also try to find them yourself online. So there's that possibility. But if, you know, we also, we did have a US distributor of dry, drying beads, but he went out of business during the pandemic. So now we're, we're trying to figure out how to recoup because it is, it is much cheaper to have that resource in, like in the US. Uh, it doubles the price of the of the beads if you have to ship them. So um, we're working. I'm working with my uh, UC Davis collaborators to try to see what we can do with uh, getting them accessible to everyone. But you can find out a lot more about them by by just googling it. Going and there there is um, UC Davis has quite a bit of information about them. But that is that's yeah that's a very important bit is. How do you get them out there and get used? This pro that project we did that was the very first test of drying beads in the Americas. They've been using them in Asia for a number of years, but they had never ever been tried over here. So that was the first effort, and I think we have pretty good data now showing us that it's worth it's worth the effort. We actually did another experiment where we used them to dry down our gene bank accessions. Um, and we did a side-by-side -side comparison of dry bead, dried seed um, compared to uh, just regular drying room, classic gene bank drying room conditions. And we found using a uh, seed aging test that there's no difference. So that was also, that's a very important pit. We have not published that data yet, but that's also a very important thing to convince the gene bank world that we, we can use these. It, it's a lot faster to dry with drying beads. What took five days uh, took two months in normal normal drying. So wow. it's a very fast dry down. So you have to be you have to be uh, monitoring and being careful. But uh, we we knew we knew that we were going to get a lot of pushback if we didn't have any data on that. So we're we're working on that too. Thank you. That's really interesting. And I see that we also have a question from Ramon Leon um, online. Ramon, would you like to turn your video on and ask a question? And then All right. The audience. Thank you so much for the presentation. Um, I have two questions. One is, uh, do you assume or do you usually get a correlation between viability and vigor or, or by renovating the collection uh, just based you know, on germination viability? test, you might be losing that seedling vigor or, or establishment. And the other question is, uh, that was really interesting, the, the, the 50 year study, really cool study. Um, I'm just wondering if, if the same trend is there for these other lines where you actually have an increase in land races that I would assume 
might be decreasing the genetic diversity, right? Or, or um, so how, how widespread do you think that phenomenon is? The, the interesting bit with that study, which I didn't mention, but I think it's a really important point, is that even though from the beginning, when we found that only 13, there are only 13 out of 56 accessions that are still out there, uh, there was such a, a great drop, decrease there. When Denise went out and did these focal uh, group discussions with communities, she would ask them, uh, she'd have all these photographs, the photographs that were taken in the 1960s. She had the photographs and she was able to show uh, older farmers who were around in the 1960s and say, um, do you still have, does your community still have these, these land races? And in 65% of the communities, they still had them. So, so that was also, uh, we felt like, wow, okay, it's not as bad as we thought it looked. Um, because it, once you, you know, you look at a, a wider perspective, you can start seeing, well, okay, with this, these 66 accessions, yeah, it's been a, a, an incredible drop in, uh, in their usage and, and existence in the field, but other farmers in the community still, still have them and still grow them. The other, the other piece of data that's super important to understand is that in Mexico, 75% of the, of the maize that's produced is produced by smallholder farmers, 75%. That's, that's big. So we need to continue to support them, to help them in any way possible. And the other thing about, about how important storage conditions are, um, most breeders don't really think about that too much. And I say to them, you know, you can do all the breeding and improving you can, but if you don't save that seed, then forget it. You know, like we need to look at uh, seed conservation, at the conservation um, conditions. And uh, so, so yeah, I think, oh, oh, and you asked about viability versus doing it, just germination testing. Um, sometimes we do viability tests. So that means we actually plant the seeds and, and look at, at viability. Sometimes we do that. We don't do that generally, um, only in specific, in certain cases, depending on whether we want to go deeper and understand more about the germination. But we, we generally use just the paper towel technique um, to get the, 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 the data on, on uh, germination rates. Thank you. Thank you. I think we have a question from Amanda. Yeah, thanks. Uh, again, for the in-situ, ex-situ experiment, I was curious what converse, what your conversations were like with the community and what kinds of main take-home messages you learned from them. Um, well, I, I would I would seriously uh, um, recommend you take a look at, at Denise's paper. So she did have a, a socioeconomics paper, and it is on the website. Um, but, uh, but she was able to... Um, she interviewed all of the families, not only the ones that kept the seed, but the ones that lost the seed. And she was able to identify what, what makes people good guardians, like what allowed them to still have the same seed of their ancestors 50 years later. And that, that was a really important piece there. Um, you know, in most cases, it's the loss of, 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 uh, of the seed had to do with some family tragedy, um, you know, uh, elderly uh, farmer of the family, the grandfather of the family, um, 
maybe he has, he or she has multiple fields, little plots all around the community. And usually the land race material gets planted in the worst ones because no matter what, they're going to do something. If they have, sometimes they do have hybrid seed, commercial seed. They put that in the better areas. They put the land race uh, seed in the the more remote, usually more remote and, and worse sites, like on the on the slopes, on the steep slopes. Um, and if the only person in the family growing that is is the, the grandparent generation, those are the fields that they abandoned first, right? They because they, they have to walk to them, or they have to, you know, they have to get a, somebody's got to give them a ride there or something. So uh, it's it's every family has a different story, and it, it's it, it's a fascinating thing to look at all these. Uh, and what what was interesting was that the families that did not have had lost their ancestors' maze. Uh, they they were most of them were sad about it, very sad about it. And we said, well, we can give it back to you. They're like, what? We have it. We have it in our bank. And we gave back every family, no matter whether they had the still had the maze or not, we gave back. That's actually that picture of Denise with the with the bag with the with the that's that's one of our trips to return the seed to the families. Now that is a super emotional thing. I mean, I, I'm like, I'm getting all they're clamped here, you know, over it because uh, because it's really it's really emotional. I, I didn't realize that it was going to be that that emotional, but people are just so happy to get that back. And of course, the people that are still growing it, they're very happy too. So uh, so, yeah, I suggest you read the paper because she goes into detail about about what are the factors that uh, allow people or. Or, or encourage people to keep going. Now, one of the very first meetings we had with farmers before Denise start, actually started her study, uh, we went to a community that had three different families in it that were part of the part of the thing. And uh, I have I have a, a friend who works in in um, water development projects, and he had worked with this community, so he connected us up with these families. And it was our first interaction with the families. Oh, it was so great. And, and it encouraged us because we had no idea whether this project was going to work or not. And uh, so one of the things that each of them talked about what kind of maize they grow. And uh, some of them grow both land race maize and, and, and they grow some commercial seed. And so I, I, asked, I asked them, I said, so why are you growing both of them? And the thing that one of the women said was, the, the land race maize is what we eat. That's the human food. That commercial hybrid stuff, that's for the animals. And, and it's a very distinct, you know, very distinct and very important that both sides get, get what they need. So. We only have one minute and I wanted to, um, I think Carlos Iglesias has a question for you and I think we'll end Hi. with that question. Okay. Hi Denise, I don't know if you can hear me well. Yes, I can hear you. Yes, thank yeah. you. Nice presentation. I was wondering if any of those families that have uh, lost their their um, land races was due to uh, improved varieties from simits having been adopted, because that's sort of the conundrum of the breeders, <laughs> isn't it? We need genetic diversity, but at the same time, we're trying to replace that genetic diversity with something better. Not a single case like oh, that. That, no. that doesn't talk very well about simits program, isn't it? <laughs> oh well. Remember, I'm a student germplasm bank, um, and I have to keep saying that over and over again, actually, to people okay. that you know, because okay. simit 
sometimes doesn't have a good name out there. So I have to keep saying, yeah, but I'm in the germplasm bank. So, um, but yeah, I don't think we had a single case like that. Um, many cases they've gone out of, out of farming completely. You know, uh, part of those, if you're familiar with uh, the, you know, with Morelos, state of Morelos in the Western, Northwestern side, that's Cuernavaca, right? And that, that area has boomed, you know, as a, as a kind of satellite city from Mexico city. So those farms over there, most of them are gone and, and they're, they've become housing developments. And so, so most of the loss of the, the, the whole group of communities has been over on that side, on the, on the Western side, uh, in the higher elevation, uh, side, uh, they're still, still growing most things, but that Morelos is like part of the breadbasket communities of all the communities around Mexico City and, it, and they produce and the, and there's been a lot of crop um, displacement you know instead of growing their own maize they'll grow um, cactus for nopales for, for uh, they'll grow um, you know a cash crop so in, in many cases it's, it's a cash crop that has replaced uh, growing the maize and then they just buy the maize downtown and in, in the village or from their neighbors you know or something yeah Time. I want to thank Dr. Denise Postage for coming to talk with us today. And I'm so excited to know that we'll have another hour with her, with some <laughs> students uh, for lunch. So thank you so much for your colloquium presentation and also for agreeing to meet with students afterwards. Thank you. Thank you.